Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Our society likes to put people in groups, right? Like you've heard the us versus them. Um, And I talked with my sixth grader today and I said, you know, Grayson, what are some characteristics of eighth graders and what are some characteristics of sixth graders? And he was like, well, eighth graders are bigger and they're meaner and they're more gossipy and they they are more sweary. And I said, oh, really? Okay. So how would you characterize a sixth grader? And he said, oh, a sixth grader is just really nice and really smart. And And so I don't know if you remember what kind of characteristics you can think of when you were in sixth grade and how you viewed eighth graders, but that's the way my middle schooler thinks of the characteristics of the different grades in his school. And um, tonight we're going to look at two different groups that the scripture talks about a lot. Whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's this theme of the faithless people, those who um, don't follow God, those who don't trust that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, those who don't listen to God's correction, those who try to satisfy their own lives, whether God tells them a different way or not. And then there's the faithful people, those who persevere through hardship, those who get through suffering and trust the Lord, those who are faithful to dig into his word and those who are faithful to be a part of his community. Um, There's the faithless and the faithful, and it looks different in different parts of scripture, but Regardless, there are the faithful and the faithless. So tonight, we're going to go back in James chapter 5. We're going to start there tonight. And we've been looking about how James, throughout his whole letter, has been talking about two different things. Last week, we talked about war and peace. And this week, we're going to talk about the faithful and the faithless and what characteristics set the faithful apart from the faithless. So let's go ahead and pause and pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for James's words to your people. Uh, They're timeless, God, and we treasure uh, scripture, God, and the way that you bring correction and you help us to grow in our understanding of who you are and how we fit into your kingdom. Lord, we just want to welcome you here tonight. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you leaned into our worship tonight. We want to welcome you into the quiet parts of our hearts, to the unknown parts of our hearts, and those hidden parts of even our faith. We welcome you there that you would help us to grow and take in your word so we can leave here changed to be more like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so James chapter one, uh, James chapter five, verse one says, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish. Aren't you so glad we started here tonight? (laughs) It gets better. Just wait for it. Because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. 
Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies, and you have spent your years on earthly luxury, satisfying your every desire." So let me set this up for you, is that in the previous chapter, in James chapter 4, Dan ended last week with this thought, is that James teaches us that our life is but a mist. We are like the fog that hovers over Lake Michigan on a warm day that sits there for a while and then the sun comes up and the mist goes out and it is no more. That our lives make an impact for a moment and then it is no more. We are a blip on the timeline of eternity. I'm so glad that you came tonight. Don't you feel really good about that? But it really puts in perspective of what the faithful do with finances and riches and what the faithless do with finances and riches. So first of all, when James is addressing rich people, he kind of takes a break from talking to Christian brothers and sisters. So he breaks away from that and he speaks to the rich people of the day. And in that day, Christians didn't have wealth. They were, they were oppressed by society. They were kicked out of social places. They didn't have wealth to speak of. So when he's talking to rich people, he's talking to Christians' oppressors. And this is what we see a lot of times in the Old Testament with prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They would address the oppressors, the oppressing nation of God's people, even though those oppressors might not actually read the letter that's being written. James is talking to the faithless. He's talking to the oppressors of God's people. So that being said, don't get too comfortable and zone out on me. You might be thinking, well, I can sit back and relax a little bit. This isn't for me because God knows I ain't rich. <laughs> and so don't zone out on me because there's attitudes that rich people in James's context take about riches that if we don't guard our hearts as American Christians, no matter how much you have or how little you have, we can let these values and these attitudes, these characteristics of the faithless invade our hearts and steal the faith that God has given to us. So I heard a preacher tell this story, and I, I can't help but to repeat it is there was this lady and she was married to a wealthy man and the wealthy man uh, was on his deathbed and he looked at her and he said, you know, I've spent my entire life building my kingdom of wealth and I've worked so hard and I've given up so much and I've built businesses and I've invested into stock and I've, uh, I have foreign accounts and local accounts and all this money and all these resources and I've worked so hard for it. I want you, when you bury me, to bury me with all of my wealth. And she looked at him and she said, are you sure? I mean, what about me? What about your children? We could use that. And he said, no, it's my work, it's my wealth. I want you to bury it with me. And so the day of the funeral comes, he died and she came to the funeral, of course, and she comes in carrying a box. And as she comes to the front row, she takes the box and puts it carefully underneath the seat of her chair. And she sits through the service, and when the time comes, she gets up, and she goes to the casket to give her last regards to her husband, puts the box in his casket, and they close the lid. And she returns to her seat, and her friend leans over, and she said, what's in the box? And the widow said, well, 
my husband wanted me to give him all of his wealth. And so I closed down the foreign accounts and I sold all the businesses and I sold all of his property and I closed out every savings account and all of his stocks and bonds and I put it in one checking account and I wrote him a check and buried it with him. (laughs) And as silly as that is, it just demonstrates that the faithless, the characteristic of the faithless is that faithless are temporal hoarders and the faithful are eternally generous with finances. The faithful will keep a godly perspective with finances because God's perspective with our wealth and the things that he has given us is eternal. It's not for our temporal location. It is for investing into eternal purposes, whether that's you're spending money on your food so you can have the strength that you need to do the work that he has given you to do, whether you're investing into missions, whether you're investing into your kids' education, whether you're investing into donation to charities. However you're investing your money, you need to make sure that you're doing it with an eternal perspective because the faithful are eternally generous and the faithless hoard for temporary gain. In his warning to the rich, James reminds us of the godly perspective that we can't take it with us when we go. It might outlive us. It might last into our children and our children's children if you accumulate that much wealth, but eventually it will dissipate and die out. So don't get me wrong. The Bible's really clear. A lot of what the Bible talks about is wealth. There's a very influential um, financial movement called financial peace. It's been around for years, but it's helped so many people govern their finances well, whether they're Christian or not Christian, because it's based on biblical principles. So much of the Proverbs is about financial management. Jesus talks about money and how to invest it and how to spend it. Money is important to God. It's an incredible asset that God has given us. So what kind of perspective does Jesus want us to have about wealth? Jesus tells us the secret to eternal treasure is not our bank accounts, but our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, he says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your desires of your heart will be also. Once our hearts are in the right place with our finances, then we are able to faithfully be generous with whatever God has given to us and whatever amount he has given to us. So just to clarify, God isn't talking about specific numbers, and I'm so thankful for that because numbers are constantly changing with inflation and society and all of that stuff that I really don't understand, so I'm going to stop talking so that way I don't sound stupid. (laughs) But Jesus talks about this. He doesn't talk about numbers. He talks about the motivation of our heart. There's, um, There's a scripture in Matthew, in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is at church. He's at the temple with his disciples, and he's watching all of these people give bags and bags of money. The wealthy are coming in with bags of money and giving it into the offering, and wow, that's amazing. They gave that much, and the disciples are in awe at how much money people are giving to the temple. But Jesus's eyes are not on the numbers. Jesus's eyes are on the heart. Because shortly after, there's a widow 
without any income source, without any job, without any societal rights, comes in with a few pennies to her name. And she takes all of her wealth in her fingers and puts them in the offering. And Jesus says, that woman is to be honored because she honored me with her heart. These people gave out of their abundance and she gave everything that she had for the glory of God and his kingdom. Generosity is not about number. The faithful give out of the heart, not the number. There's also another little story in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus is preaching to 5,000 men plus women and children. I don't even want to try to do the math. That's like a lot of people. And he's been preaching to them all day, and of course they're hungry, and Jesus turns to his disciples mid-sentence and said, okay, you got to feed these people. Ah! And they said, Jesus, there's not enough food in this region to feed this many people. We, we could take up an offering and not be able to feed these people. And Jesus said, well, let's see what's, what you have. And a little boy brought his wealth with him. He brought a little lunch, just a lunch pail, and she, he said, Jesus, you can have my lunch, knowing that he would go hungry if he gave his lunch to Jesus. And Jesus blessed the generous heart of the little boy. And 5,000 men plus women and children ate that day till they were so full. And then they collected 12 baskets of food of leftovers. God blesses the wealth of the faithful when we invest it for eternal purposes. The problem with the hoarding mentality of the faithless, it comes to the attitude that I might not have enough to take care of me and mine, as opposed to how can I invest this into the lives of people around me? How can I invest this into eternity? Because the faithful understand we can be eternally generous because God is the supplier of all of our wealth. No matter how much we have or how little we have, God is our supplier and he never runs out of supply. And he promises to always provide for us what we need. Next, the faithless covet more, whereas the faithful are satisfied. The faithless covet whereas the faithful are satisfied. The faithless covet wealth. The faithless crave more wealth. We can have a lot in our pockets and in our accounts, and we can have a little in our pockets and in our accounts, but the attitude is the same, that if you're coveting wealth, you will never be satisfied because wealth is temporal, wealth is material, it will run out, you will run out someday. Some of us might think, oh, if I just had a nicer house. I would be so much happier. If only I had a better car. If only I had a little bit more money, I could be super fashionable and do the makeup and all of those things, and then people would love me. If only I had. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things, right? It's fun to have nice things, and when we don't set those up on, as idolatry, it's okay to have nice things. The problem is, is that when we put our focus on having nicer things and more and more, we begin to covet, we will never have enough to satisfy our soul. But God satisfies us. The faithful are satisfied because their satisfaction is in God alone and in not what the things he gives to us. Jesus says not to worry about the clothes you wear or the food you'll eat because God satisfies our every need according to his riches 
And again, there's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth as long as we keep an eternal perspective and we're faithful. The way we combat a faithless attitude about wealth is to build relationship with God. Because as we build our relationship with God and we feed ourselves on his word and we feed ourselves on spending time in prayer and we feed ourselves on spending time with God's people, our souls become more satisfied and we get rid of that covetous craving of stuff that we will never have enough of. We also combat covetousness by being generous. God loves it when we give things away and we invest things into his kingdom and into his purposes. And when we put his priorities above our own desires, then we are satisfied because we are seeking God's approval. When I was a little baby, my parents were pretty much fresh out of college. I was about six months old. That, that's what my mom told me. I don't remember, actually. Um, <laughs> I was about six months old, and my brother was about um, a year and a half. And my parents were dirt poor. I mean, dad would go shooting squirrels in the woods just to have dinner on the table. Um, and they were pastoring a small church in Pennsylvania. And uh, there was one night at church that the Lord put in their heart, he said, I want you to give $50 an offering. And my mom was like, God, we need milk and bread at home. And that's all we have. They didn't have any money in their bank account. They didn't have any more cash. $50 is all that they had. And the Lord said, I want you to trust me and put in the offering. Lord, are you sure? Yes, put it in the offering. And she did. They were obedient to put the $50 in the offering. And by the end of service, someone came up, not knowing what the Lord had put on their heart, not knowing what had happened, gave them a $100 bill, and God doubled the supply in their life because of their obedience to hand over wealth to him and be obedient to him and put his desires to, above their own desires, above their own comfort, and God bless them for it. God will bless us when we are generous with our finances. We don't need to understand why God asks us to do things, but when he asks us to do something, we are a people that are faithful and we are people who are obedient to do the eternal things that God wants us to invest in. So other characteristics of the faithful and the faithless are found as we read down. So verse seven, dear brothers and sisters, so James is back talking to the, the people of God, right, other Christians. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly wait for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, um, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And we see here that the faithless grumble in the face of suffering, and the faithful are patient with endurance. We talked about how God satisfies our hearts with wealth and with the things that he gives to us in ways that riches cannot. And in response, the faithful are generous. But James switches gears here. He's directly talking to us. He's directly talking to people who are following Jesus. And he says, 
Be patient in suffering. So if you're having a hard day at work and that person, that coworker is toxic and getting on your last nerve and you wanna punch them in the face, be patient. When you're waiting for an outcome from your relationship building and you're wanting to see fruitfulness in a relationship, be patient. When you are waiting on, an, on a business investment to come through that you've done all the work for and that you've invested into and you're waiting, be patient. When you're waiting for the Lord to show you that your work for him is making some kind of difference, be patient. The trick with waiting is that it's so hard to wait. It's so hard to wait. Some of my grumbliest moments in life has been when I've been waiting for something. Anybody else could testify to that? Am I the only faithless person in the room? Okay, thank you. Um, There's three people with me. (laughs) I've spent so much of my life waiting, and I think what happens is when we're waiting and we start to get grumbly, if we kind of evaluate that a little bit, what's really bothering us with, when we're waiting on something we hope for? I think it's the fear of the what ifs. Like, what if this doesn't happen? What if I'm stuck waiting forever? What if I don't get paid? What if I don't get married? What if I don't get that business deal? What if I don't get that bill of health? What if those barges in the California West Coast never get opened and shipped out for Christmas presents? What am I going to do? We don't need to rest in the what ifs, and that's the best part. The Bible says that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, that they will mount up with wings like eagles and they will soar. We don't wait on the outcome of what we hope for. We wait on the Lord because God is our hope. He's the hope of the faithful, and God never fails. He always comes through on his word. And so we can lean into the fear of the what-ifs, which doesn't feel good, and it makes us defensive. It makes us grumpy. It makes us tired. It makes us covet. It makes us selfish. It makes us push back at people. Or we can start believing in God that he will come through for us and we can stay sweet and we can stay patient and we can stay hopeful and we can stay trusting in the Lord. I love that James uses the picture of a farmer because um, farmers just have a unique perspective on fruitfulness that I think is so rich. Um, I went to a corn maze recently. Has anyone been to a corn maze with their kids this year yet, this fall? I went to one that was so cool. It took us like two hours to get out of. It was great. And um, And we didn't get to the aerial view, but like if you looked over, it was like a tractor and a cow and a Christmas tree and all this cool stuff. Um, But as I was walking through, it was fun walking through, but one of my favorite parts was picking up um, heads of corn off the ground that had fallen off the stalks. And you could peel off the, the husk of it and just kind of like peel the kernels off. Like you could take them off one by one, or you could take off a whole row at a time. It's like the best fidget toy ever. And the Lord laid on my heart, he said, you know, you could either eat this ear of corn, which is what we all do. I mean, it's food. You eat an ear of corn. You don't eat a kernel of corn, right? A kernel of corn is not going to fill you up. And an ear of corn won't either. You probably need two. Um, You could either eat this or you could take off all of the kernels, hundreds of kernels on one corn cob can make a harvest of other corn cobs that would multiply and make a harvest of a cornfield 
that God is the God of abundance. God is the God of multiplication. God is the God of fruitfulness. So when I think about a farmer, I think the thing that the farmer has control of is the farmer can till a field, a farmer can fertilize a field, and a farmer can like throw seed out there and plant the seeds, right? But then after all that work is done, corn takes like 100 days before it's grown. That's like three, yeah, three and a half months. Yeah, I'm really good at math. Um, And that's a long time just to wait for corn to happen. So the farmer has control of these things, but then the farmer has to wait on the sun. Well, that's from God. The farmer has to wait for rain. That's from God. The farmer has to wait for germination. That's from God. The farmer has to wait for growth and maturation. That's from God. Do you see my point? While we're waiting, God is doing all this work that you might not even see or realize or know about, that you don't need to wait in the what ifs, that you can wait on God because he is the hope of the faithful. We don't need to be scared. Praise the Lord. I lost my place. I got so excited about that. (laughs) So the faithless can be easily discouraged, grumpy, judgy, and toxic. But when the faithful wait on the Lord, the faithful stay sweet and kind and patient and persevering. I love how the modern English version puts uh, verse uh, 8 in this passage. Uh, James says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts your heart. When you feel fearful, establish your heart. James isn't saying pray about it or think about it or talk about it. He says establish your heart. It's an imperative. It's a command. You establish your heart. That means to strengthen your heart. Strengthen your resolve while you're waiting on God. You establish your heart. You take captive the fear in your mind and in your thinking. You take captive the doubt that God will come through. Establish your heart. Turn your trust to the Lord. You are faithful because God is faithful and he never, never fails. When, you, when that fear and anxiety start to creep in, pray. Establish your heart through prayer. When that fear and anxiety start to set in, you can talk to a believer. Establish your heart in conversation. You can establish your heart by going back to the word of God and saying, Lord, I need to hear your voice here. Establish your heart. Finally, we see in James that the faithful are God approved and the faithless are people approved. In verse 12, it says, but most of all my brothers and sisters never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else, just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Most of all, like that's the most important out of all those things. So why, like really? So how is being a person of your word like more important than fruitfulness or waiting on God or like wealth and riches? It is so important. See, the faithless live for others' approval and the faithful live for God's approval. James is basically quoting Jesus in Matthew chapter five where Jesus says, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne and do not say by earth because the earth is his footstool and do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just simply say, yes, I will or no, I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. 
I think when we swear by something, oh, I promise, I'll, I'll do it this time, I promise. I'll, I, 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 I feel bad saying that in church, I'm not gonna say that. Um, but when you swear by something instead of just saying yes, if you have to defend yourself, then you need to take a heart check and think, if I have to swear this, then my character is flawed. Then I'm not being an integrity, a person of integrity because you can't trust me if I have to swear my word to you. And the thing about this is that as followers of God, as faithful followers of God, we are little Christ to people around us. That we are to be an, a people of integrity because God never goes back on his word. That God isn't a God who says yes and then takes it back. That God isn't a God who says no and changes his mind. God is a God of integrity and we are to display his integrity to the world as the faithful. I think a lot of times when we get stuck in saying yes, part of it's based off of people approval. Like if I don't say yes to you, then I'm gonna disappoint you and you're gonna think less of me. Or if I say yes to you, then maybe I'll get you in my corner and I can use your influence for my gain. Or if I say yes to you, maybe I can have a little bit of power and influence in this area of your life. It can get kind of manipulative, right? If we say yes for people-approved reasons. But when we begin to say yes to God, it means that we have to say no to certain things that God doesn't have for our lives. And that gets painful real fast. That gets uncomfortable real fast. When someone says, hey, come hang out with us at the bar. Let's go party this weekend. Are you gonna say yes or are you gonna say no? Are you gonna be God approved or people approved? Because we wanna share God's love with the world. We need to be God approved. When we say yes to things that's gonna pull us from commitments to our family that we've already made, are you saying yes to gain favor with people because God wants you to stay true to your commitments to your family and the responsibilities that he's given you in your life? And it's so hard, like it's so hard to break those. I feel you <laughs> with that. It's so hard. But I want you to think of it this way. Every time you say yes to something, you're actually saying no to something else. So if you're saying yes to give your time to something, you are investing your time into that and not to this. Do you get it? And then every time you say no to something, you're actually saying yes to something else. Even though we're saying the words doesn't mean that we don't mean the other thing. That we need to be people who say yes and stick to it, and we need to be people who say no and stick to that because the faithful live for God's approval and the faithless live for others' approval. When we look at these, this list here tonight, uh, can we put the list back up, please? Of the characteristics of the faithless and the faithful. We can look at it as a us and them kind of thing, but to be honest with you, when I was studying the scripture, I thought, oh God, I see a lot of me in that faithless pile. And I see some of me in the faithful, so praise God for that. But there's a whole lot of work that still needs to be done here. And if we take a measuring stick and we measure our righteousness and our faithfulness against the faithless, that's not what God wants for our lives. Because to be honest with you, we can see ourselves in both categories, but our measuring stick is to be measured against the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because he alone makes us right. 
And we will never measure up but by his grace and by his mercy. And so when we hold the measuring stick against these two things, what is the Lord putting on your heart tonight? What in the faithless category do you need to give to the Lord tonight? Are you holding on to wealth and treasure that God is asking you to invest in eternal gain? Are you coveting something that someone else has that you want more of? Are you thinking that stuff is gonna satisfy you when only God is gonna satisfy you? Do you grumble while you wait? Are you resting in the what ifs? Or are you resting in God and hope in him? Are you looking for people's approval? Or are you looking to be God approved? And as we end tonight, I wanna pray for you before I'm done, but as we end tonight, I wanna invite you on your roundtables to kind of look at that list and just be honest with each other and be like, what, what is God calling you to grow in your faith more? What area? And then let's celebrate what God has done in you and how has God grown faithfulness in your life? Let's celebrate those areas too because that's a work of God and that needs to be rejoiced over and celebrated. And then before you leave, go ahead and pray for one another. If one of you are struggling, I'm sorry, if all of us are struggling in an area of faithlessness, let's pray for one another and lift each other up because we can all grow tonight in our faith. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you that our faith is a gift from you. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for those times that we lean into temporary gain. God, we ask for your forgiveness for coveting things instead of desiring you. We ask, Lord, for your forgiveness for looking for people's approval rather than being God-approved. And I just ask that you would build our faith tonight, that we would be a people faithful to what you've called us to do, a people faithful to who you've called us to be, a people faithful because we love you and because we owe you everything because it's all from you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.